Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show on the Compete Network powered by Clue, the podcast for product marketers and compete pros looking to give their companies a competitive advantage. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and today I was joined by the Johnson brothers, Derek and Eric, who head up Aurora WDC and have over three decades of compete experience. Derek and Eric are natural storytellers. They've got a book coming out too in early 2024, and they share a ton of lessons, um, tips, advice, things you should do, shouldn't do from their experiences in the world of compete, including a big dive into friction and why internal friction isn't necessarily a bad thing. And as folks in compete, you need that friction in order to create positive change. Can't wait for you guys to all listen to this one. There's a ton of expertise and can't wait for you all to check it out. With that all said, let's get into my conversation with the Johnson brothers. Eric and Derek both with nearly three decades of experience in the world of Compete, and I think our first pair of siblings on the podcast. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pretty confident the first pair of siblings on the show. Eric is the founder, and Derek is the CEO of Aurora WDC. Aurora WDC has three offerings, all with one purpose, serving the needs of intelligence professionals and executives so that they can amplify insights and build a culture of Compete. And now they've been generous enough to give their time. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Adam. Hey, Derek. Thanks, Adam. Eric, pleasure to be with you all. So what we like to do on the podcast to kick things off, we like to get tactical early. Um, Both of you have a lot of experience in the world of Compete. Can you share with our listeners three quick pieces of advice that you've learned through your career in Compete so far. Derek, we had a quick little prep session before we hopped on here, so I'll share the three I texted over to you. How about that? Well, I think um, the first and foremost is to think the unthinkable, and that means that um, you can't ignore the improbable. Just because you uh, don't expect it to happen doesn't mean it won't happen. And that's really a big part of what insight and intelligence work involves is being the ones who are thinking the unthinkable because uh, most of the people inside the organization and are serving the stakeholders you're serving don't. They don't, uh, they, they are more wishful in their thinking. They, uh, they have hope uh, for a brighter future. And that's not your job as an insights and intelligence person. Your job is to consider what might go wrong, the Murphy's Law uh, side of it. So that's number one. Uh, number two, I think, is uh, to listen about 10 times more than you speak. Uh, we call that principle unspeakable. So it's unthinkable, then unspeakable. And, and what we mean by that is um, I think intelligence people have a tendency to get really into granular detail about what's going on and giving people, you know, the full uh, unfettered, um, you know, evaluation of what it is they're assessing. And that's not always the most useful because it can it can paralyze people who don't have the full context of what you're uh, trying to convey to them. Um, so listening to what it is they need and then give, rather listening to what they, they want and then giving them what they need, uh, I think. Um, and the ability to do that is an art form. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a skill. It's not a science. It's something you learn through experience and through failing at it a few times before you get it right. Um, and understanding how how to keep your mouth shut uh, a good portion of the time. Uh, And then I think the final thing is that um, 
the value of uh, a, an insight that's been ignored is not neutral. It's not zero. It's negative. Uh, an ignored insight actually can corrupt and uh, destroy the value of adjacent insights uh, around the same topic. It can make stakeholders um, more biased than they would have been had they not been encouraged to act on it. So we call that principle no action, no traction. Uh, that that ultimately is the value of all insights, is that uh, someone does something uh, differently based upon it, even if that is a choice to do nothing, by the way. Uh, that's, uh, I think, a common misconception in this line of work is that doing nothing is universally bad. Not so. Mm -hmm. Doing nothing is universally good when you don't know what to do. I'll say that one more time. In the absence of certainty about what to do next, you should do nothing. So those are my three. And Derek, I think you'd probably side on with those. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add to that is um, we were taught this at a young age. So being the first uh, duo of siblings here uh, that you might have had on the show, Adam, you know, our dad years and years ago, and I know you have a lot of sales enablement people that listen to your uh, podcast and tune in. He said it best. And I used this statement uh, as recent as yesterday. Uh, when I did an interview uh, serving in my role as president of the Council of CI Fellows. Um, and the statement goes like this, nothing happens until someone sells something to someone. Now, you could argue that the world of product development, you know, you don't necessarily have a buyer before you have a product or service. Mm -hmm. I get all that. But ultimately, you got to figure out how to sell that product or service to someone in order to be a going concern, right? So nothing happens until someone sells something to someone, I think is one of the greatest statements that uh, as a compete or a competitive Intel professional that you might consider burning into your memory. Okay. So those are quite a, those are quite a few very strong examples to kick off the bat here. I kind of want to dig in on a couple. Um, I think as well that I, I, uh, Eric, when you mentioned that that last piece there of the not not acknowledging an action or an insight will have kind of like a trickle down effect. Uh, and do you have like an example of the implications of what can happen or that you've seen in workplaces where there's like maybe where there has been sort of I don't want to say ignoring of an insight, but um, not a full acknowledgement. Uh, and kind of the distinction between acknowledging an insight and doing nothing and sweeping it under the rug. Like what, what's, cause it feels like a, there is a clear difference, but what's the nuance there? Yeah. Um, I'll use a macro environmental example since I can't talk about client examples in, in particular, but um, I'll cite the situation between uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine right now and the, um, What's the right way to put this so that it's politically neutral? The unexpected effects of dollar-denominated sanctions against Russia. Um, that has had macro-environmental effects that I don't think were anticipated by uh, NATO and uh, the American-led hegemonic West, in other words. Uh, and the consequences of that are uh, fairly severe. Uh, we're going to be meet, seeing a meet here. It's As we record this, it's early August of 2023. I don't know if you wanted me to say that, Adam, but... Uh, in about three weeks, uh, there's going to be a meeting in Johannesburg between the BRICS uh, alliance, uh, and they're going to be discussing uh, the de-dollarization of the global economy. Would that meeting have been happening had the sanctions against Russia 
been a little more safely calibrated to produce the desired outcome in the macro environment? Probably not. It probably would not have allowed uh, that alliance to have the same uh, degree and depth of disruptive conversation that they're going to have here in a couple of weeks. So that's a macro environmental example. Um, that's actually sort of relevant, I think, to your listeners, too, is that there's three very distinct types of intelligence work that gets done. One is on the macro environment like that, the what we call the uncontrollables, the contingency control factors. Um, the next is your own dominion control factors. Um, and those dominion control factors are the things that you uh, your entity, your stakeholders control exclusively. And then there's the influence factors, the, uh, the control factors of others that you have a greater or lesser degree of influence over. Now, when you start to compartmentalize a little bit like that, it becomes more like a programming language. Uh, strategy becomes uh, much more like a programming language and programming strategy becomes something that insight people uh, can learn how to do and do well and also convince uh, their stakeholders and clients uh, in the executive suite to do as well. You know, that the example you give there, and this kind of is a perfect segue to the book you're working on and the kind of concept that anchors the book that you're, you're both working on, this missionaries and mercenaries theme of, like you mentioned there, like immediate actions would be sort of mercenary work and kind of the domino effect of long-term implications. I mean, depending on what your time horizon is for like short-term to long-term is, like you mentioned, the unintended consequences. And a big part of this book you're working on and the work for a lot of people in this in this compete profession is the balance of short, I don't want to use the word short term, but the, uh, immediate impact items, the immediate things that are on the list. Uh, uh, Derek, we were talking before we went on uh, live here, sort of like the immediate gratification you get of doing the hands-on work. And then there's the missionaries piece, which is that longer, broader view of what, what's happening in the market or things that might happen five years, 10 years down the road, the, the, the Murphy's law piece. So from, from your experience, both of you, how do you balance both of those pieces? Derek, I'll defer to you if you want to go first. I can go first. You know, I, th I think that the, the balance comes in understanding what type of business you're operating in, right? So for our business, we know that, uh, as a self-funded, private to organization, you know, and, and fixated on remaining so for the rest of my and Eric's careers, you know, that we have to balance that perhaps uh, more effectively on a day-to-day -day basis than those firms who choose to take on outside investment or venture capital or you name it. Uh, they might buy themselves a little more time and the growth might be there for them. But at the end of the day, we've made a choice about the type of firm that we're seeking to be, which is a really critical element of the, the driver mentality behind how we balance mercenary and missionary uh, mindset in that regard. Um, I'm thinking generally in the realm of zero to 180 days out. Eric, on the other hand, as my management counterpart, is thinking most of the time 180 days and beyond. And it tends to be a really good mix of both living in the current realities as well as mm -hmm. being able to think far enough out that allows ideally uh, a focus for the future and our focus for the future obviously has to be 
and remain a, a focus for the future for our clients and our mm -hmm. staff members and our partners out there in the industry too. So I, I think that would be the way I would explain it. Eric, what do you think? I'll just add that um, the way to think about the mercenary is that they have a winning aspiration. They have a definition of uh, success, which is something that they can achieve uh, largely on their own and pretty quickly. Uh, maybe today, mm -hmm. maybe in the next week, uh, et cetera. Maybe in the next 180 days, as Derek says. Uh, the missionary, however, instead of a winning aspiration, the missionary serves a just cause. Uh, and that just cause is defined by being unachievable in their time. Uh, in other words, their work will largely be contributing to the longer range success of the enterprise uh, that they're involved mm -hmm. with. Uh, and whatever that is, they're not really going to enjoy the benefits of that work directly. Uh, others will. Now, the reason it's called uh, balance uh, is because it's not a ratio. It's not more mercenary means less missionary, more mi missionary means less mercenary. It's not, it's not a zero-sum uh, equation like that. It's more like treble and bass uh, in uh, music. And if you think about music, um, the, what is harmonic, what is um, pleasant uh, to the ear is based upon that uh, balance between treble and bass. So you might have a lot of bass and a lot of treble under certain circumstances uh, in order to come up with that harmony. Um, but in the end, I think it's understanding the circumstance. You know, what circumstance am I in? How much of my inner mercenary is required here to get things done? And how much of my missionary will be required in order to think beyond my own self-interest? That makes sense. So it, what, what have you two seen then with, with this kind of concept in mind and these two sort of uh, ways of work in mind that you're, you're balancing with for folks in Compete? What are you seeing across other folks in Compete you're talking to, especially with the state of the market that's been in 2023? It's like there's been, I, I think there should be like a little coin in the, we should have a little swear jar every time I say unprecedented times. It's now precedented. If it's been unprecedented for this long, but like, kind of market volatility um there's been like t like less in the pipeline for a lot of companies like there's been layoffs across the board when there's sort of this like seismic shift how are you seeing compete professionals sort of balance up one they, there's they, there could be more pressure to like lots of things that happen and we need to go 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 what can i do as someone in compete that impacts uh the bottom line today impacts keeps the business afloat today because this and that are happening but also oh like we got to zoom out when there's when when stuff's shaking here we got to zoom out and really look ahead but it's also difficult when there's so many different factors kind of entering the picture and shaking everything up like a snow globe so what are you seeing when you're talking to two different like all of these dif different folks and compete that are in a in a really interesting spot this year I, I can start out that answer, um, and it really gets at the kind of the big uh, second topic that we talked about touching on today, Adam, and that is, in the absence of friction, your growth potential as a compete professional is going to be limited. Um, I listened to a master class by Wayne Gretzky back in, say, April, uh, maybe it was March, and I'm not a hockey player, never have laced up the skates, but I, I'm a a big fan of the athlete athlete's mindset. And so I was led for some reason or another to this Wayne Gretzky masterclass uh, that you can buy out there on iTunes or wherever. And in it, he said that until you're willing to go to the part of the ice where you're going to get abused and beat up 
you will never grow. And so that's the part of the ice, uh, whether it's the proverbial ice, if you are a, a hockey or a ice skater, uh, or in the business world, which is where we live on a day-to-day basis, unless you're willing to go to the part of the business ice where you're going to, at times, maybe get your butt kicked a little bit, um, that friction that you'll have with stakeholders should be seen as a good thing. Now, there's negative friction, no doubt, out there that that is uh, plentiful. You know, you can find plenty of arrogant, egotistical um, executives that lack humility, and you can try to go toe-to-toe with them, and it's probably not going to work out that well for most CI leaders. Um, If you find those who are uh, representative of the of the balance of empathy and humility amongst other things that Eric and I in this book are, are bringing to life. That's where I think the opportunity for positive friction really exists, uh, whether it be from a sales enablement point of view, strategic intelligence, M&A, supply chain and risk management, pricing assessment. I'm really, a, I'm neutral on where in the organization as a compete professional, you're trying to have that impact. Mm-hmm. But until you until you actively seek out and embrace that opportunity for positive friction to then develop trust with those stakeholders so that in those downtimes, you're not the number one name on the list to get cut. They see value in the compete uh, group and team that's around them. I think that's where you're going to see greater opportunity for longevity. I don't know, Eric, what do you, what do you believe? Well, let me tack on to that a little bit about um, there are direct results, I think, that people in this work uh, can have where they're, maybe that's part of the benchmark to increase the lead-to-close ratio. You know, That's a very tangible, yeah. quantitative metric that can be uh, pointed to, uh, perhaps even taken credit for. Uh, should someone uh, be thinking about their immediate impact. But I think there's really, really intangible um, qualitative differences that can be made by the the insights people who are doing this work in the sense that they're asking questions that no one else is asking. Um, so if you mm-hmm. think of the mercenary being the one who's elevating the lead to close ratio, fantastic. Yep. Your missionary would also better be asking questions that nobody else is asking in order so that you're prepared for that future that you might not be around to confront, but your organization hopefully will be because you've helped them ask those difficult questions. So that that is a better understanding of the duality of tactical and strategic, by the way, which I'll um, go ahead and sort of put a pin in right now. Um, I've always been troubled by the false dichotomy of tactical and strategic because it implies that tactical has this sort of more immediate, more tangible, smaller scale, perhaps, narrower time, shorter time frame, whatever, you know, characteristics go along with tactical. And I really just hate that. In fact, I, I um, wrote a blog post about 15 years ago saying strategists are a dime a dozen. Be a tactician uh, because tacticians actually get things done. Better yet, be a logistician. Be someone who can handle the logistics of uh, pulling off a complex, abstract project like selling a sophisticated uh, technological solution to a, a skeptical customer. Um, but, you know, to take that kind of one step further, um, one of the things I tell my children, which I'll share with you all here, because uh, I, I normally don't share the stuff I tell my children in business <laughs> settings, but I'll, I'll make an exception for for, the, for your audience, Adam. Um, 
comfort is a slow death. And you might occasionally become uncomfortable with the things that have to get talked about in a business setting. In fact, if you're not occasionally becoming uncomfortable, your organization's dying a slow death uh, because change is happening at a faster rate outside your organization than it's happening inside. Um, if you sort of think about one of the management leaders of the last half century, Jack Welch, that was actually his diagnostic for uh, whether organizations had a future. If, uh, if change is happening faster on the outside than on the inside, death is near. Uh, and so I think that's a big part of this duality, the real duality, which is I got to produce results today, but my organization is going to have to produce results for its stakeholders that I might not be around to see. I certainly won't be able to take credit for it. I've got two questions and I want each of you to kind of pick up one. I think, I think uh, Eric, you might be on this kind of the, the missionary lens you're talking here. And then Derek, as you mentioned, within your own function, you might be more of the, the mercenary yourself. So I'll, I'll throw that one to you. But first of all, on this bigger picture side, I, as you mentioned, sort of asking the questions that are uncomfortable, asking the questions that will have implications before, that will have implications long after you're gone. My, and again, if we think of the business context, like where there's a lot more uncertainty happening right now, how do you create positive friction by bringing those questions to the table where it's not a matter of paralysis by analysis, where it's like, here, I'm dropping in this big uncertainty. Go do, go do with it what you will. Like, how do you make that productive? You know, inside our own company, uh, I actually had this conversation yesterday with some analysts who are working in our summer internship program. And I said, uh, the task ahead of you in the next few days is to tell us at what point you give up on our product, meaning First Light. First Light had a specific mission that we're building for them to test. Uh, and I need to know at what point they start tearing their hair out with our product and abandon it. Because if our own stakeholders, people who want to see us succeed, are turning away from what it is we're bringing to market. That's a tremendous indication that we're doing something wrong. Now, tell me what it was. What was the last straw that broke the camel's backs, proverbially? Now, let's go ahead and attack those problems you know, at a systemic level and, and figure that out so that the next iteration of the product, or that feature of the product in this case, uh, can be improved. Um, I think that uh, the prerequisite for all of this is a culture of trust and a culture where um, confidence is had in debate and that debate is not seen as something that is counterproductive or in bad taste or rude. Um, debate is something that provides the friction that Derek just got done talking about. In the absence of debate, actually, you can't have friction. friction. And I think without friction, you, you don't get growth, not in the long term. So uh, thinking about this notion that everyone has to agree, I think it was Wrigley who said, where two agree, one is unnecessary. Um, that notion of debate is, I think, a huge part of what intelligence and insights people um, have to develop as a skill set for themselves and, and in the organizations they serve. I'll uh, take the mercenary side, Adam, of that question. You know, there's a reason why I got Kobe, um, the Mamba mentality over my shoulder. You know, it, at times I'm on Zoom calls with clients or partners or staff members and they see a different view, other camera. Uh, and then for most podcasting, I, I do this angle. And the, the real reason for that is because I think um, the Mamba mentality really speaks to both the mercenary and the missionary. 
you know, the, the opportunity to go out there, and I'm more of a basketball fan than I ever will be a hockey fan per se, but um, to go out there and just have that killer mentality that I'm going to go take what is due uh, to be with a great product, a great capability, and that for compete professionals, if you don't have, to Eric's point, faith in your own product platform, you know, then it's time to move on somewhere else and go be a mercenary for some other company where that passion can either be reinstilled or developed um, further from where it might be today so that then you can go and have those, at times, difficult conversations with your stakeholders to develop positive friction that leads to the trust. But the missionary side of the Mamba mentality also tells you it's a constant quest to be the best version of yourself. Now, in today's society, at the start of this podcast, Adam, you started out saying something that I found really interesting. It's a, it's a society we live in that seeks immediate gratification. And in my brother's world, he says it really well when he says that as competitive professionals, we're often planting seeds for trees under shade we will not sit. And I think that that's a pretty interesting statement. Because, you know, odds are good you might move on as a compete professional, either self-induced or induced upon you uh, due to some type of market situation or better opportunity, you name it. But at the end of the day, can you look yourself in the mirror as a compete professional and say, you know, I did good things uh, in that role. Now I'm going to go take my skills, time, talent, and treasure to a different situation, and I'm going to go plant seeds potentially under whose shade I may not sit someday. And, you know, while Eric and I have uh, maybe a longer view about our time already mm. here at Aurora or what the future might hold, the reality is that uh, in a lot of walks of life, people really thrive on that opportunity to kind of go in, be a mercenary and a missionary for two or three years, mm-hmm. get out, move on to the next opportunity, and keep kind of uh, rinsing and repeating that that mentality, if you will. And I, I have no judgment over that whatsoever. I want to, I want to, mm-hmm. I know we're, we're coming up on time, but I do want to get your take as well, mm-hmm. sort of on positive friction. As a lot of our listeners today and a lot of uh, folks in Compete, there's this kind of growing partnership between themselves and revenue leaders. Like what is sort of forging this partnership between mm-hmm. Compete and the people that own the revenue function. What are some of the ways in your career, both of you, I would love to hear hear some stories or something during your, your, your career where you've built positive friction with those revenue leaders to get the outcomes that are gonna help the business and to solidify or forge that partnership or relationship. Because again, that's something that I think a lot of folks in Compete are looking to unlock and they're just not quite sure how yet so I would, I would love love your takes maybe it's lessons learned from the starting of your career or something you nailed with, with more experience under your belt i got a couple stories if you don't mind so one story and this is in the book by the way i think both of these are in the book but one story uh that comes to mind happened just before derek joined the company uh and i had a client who um this is a sort of revenue per se in the sense that it's going to be reflected next quarter but it's revenue that will be reflected over the next decade. Uh, and in this example, it was the maker of an eczema laser emitter who um, asked me 
uh, if I could acquire a couple of his competitors' products for them to uh, use in a lawsuit uh, because they felt that uh, they were being infringed upon their patent. And uh, if they could prove that that infringement was the case, uh, they could not necessarily put them out of business, but they could enjoy a very nice royalty payment in order to have the privilege to continue in that business. Now, how would you go about acquiring an eczema laser emitter, would you imagine, Adam? Well, since they only sell a few <laughs> of these things a year and they're a couple million bucks, the only way to find one is to find a decommissioned wafer fabrication plant that has one in, a, in an auction. So that's exactly what I did. Um, and with a budget of about 300,000 US dollars, I went out and acquired one of each of these Exemar lasers. My client ended up suing both of those companies uh, and enjoyed a several hundred million dollar revenue windfall as a result of that particular engagement. Now, 300,000 in plus our fee, they got about 900 million back. I'd say that was a pretty good use of insight uh, opportunity in that, in that set of circumstances. But did, was it reflected in the next quarter? No, it was reflected over the next decade or so. Now, that's one example that's, that's tangible that I think speaks more to the missionary, so to speak. Mm. Um, the missionary has to be thinking about, ultimately, what will make our organization more competitive in the, in the world, make customers want ours, find it superior to the competing offer, mm -hmm. the others that are, uh, that are proclaiming to do some similar value. Um, if you bring that down to a more immediate sort of next quarter kind of example, um, one of the, I don't know if this is in there or yeah. not, but um, I had an engagement with uh, a, the right way to obfuscate the identity here, call them a trucking company uh, that was interested in getting into the logistics software business. I think this was before your time, Derek. Um, and that particular company knew that uh, the control of that logistics software business would be something that all of their trucking competitors would find um, very unattractive to using that logistics software. So my job was actually to help them understand what the opinion of those other competitors was going to be. So it involved interviewing um, about 40 trucking companies and asking them about their logistics software plans uh, and this hopefully will speak a little more directly to your audience here, Adam, in the sense that I know you've got a lot of folks who are in the enterprise software business who uh, who value your your insights and, <laughs> and commentary. Um, what are the opinions of all of those competitors? You know, what are what do they think about my client getting into that business? Would that be something that would be so anathema to them that they wouldn't even consider it? And that question was the way the client asked me the question. I had to reframe the question as follows. It's not whether they would find it anathema. It's under what circumstances would they find it acceptable. Mm. You understand the difference? What are the criteria by which my competitors can be induced to surrender to my offer? And by the way, I, I will tell you as someone who's been doing this my entire adult career, um, there's nothing more fun than inducing a surrender in a competitive situation when that competitor realizes they can't compete against you. They must surrender and adopt whatever it is your offer is that represents the industry standard. That's ultimately, uh, that's the funnest part of my mm -hmm. job anyway. There's a couple stories for you, Derek. I don't know if you've got to do you want to share. thing I would add real quick, and I know we're pushing the boundaries on time, would be our, our mom ran what I would argue was the best uh, backstop to a human intelligence network that you could ever possibly dream of as a business. And that would be a beauty salon in a small town. And so as kids, we were exposed to this human intel network that would come in and out of that beauty shop. 
And, you know, uh, what's interesting is then we go on to become, um, you know, partners in a business that sees itself as the human intelligence company, right? So the opportunity to go out there and help organizations build human intel networks is something that I take a lot of joy and pride in. And that can be really fulfilling both from the sales enablement side, but also the, I liked what you said, Eric, the, the logistician, uh, that interplay between the, the strategist and the tactician, being able to arrange really interesting, high value, both strategic and tactical outcomes for your compete program. And much of that, in my opinion, is still always going to be rooted in the human element. Uh, in fact, my interview of Ellen Naylor yesterday, this fellow's interview, she said it well. She said, humans will always be at the center of competitive intelligence, whether there's AIs or development platforms or what have you, the, the human element is still going to remain and needs to remain really important for us in the positive friction lens to be able to convey uh, action-inducing sort of moments with our stakeholders. Otherwise, you know, the, the degree of empathy and humility is going to be lost. Hey, you know, that's the, what I hope your listeners might take away, at least from my side of this podcast today. Absolutely. We've, that, that's been touched on more and more amongst guests, right? that kind of partnership with AI right now and keeping Compete Pros at the center. Derek and Eric, this was awesome. I cannot wait for the book. Do we have a finalized title on the book? Are we still working on this? What's, what, what, can, uh, what can folks look for when this is released in the, in the, new, in the new year? Well, we know it's going to be called The Missionary and the Mercenary. There might be a subtitle to it, but uh, we'll keep you guessing on that one for another few months. Perfect. So, folks, when you're listening to this, make sure you have your eyes peeled for The Missionary and the Mercenary coming out soon. Uh, where can folks connect with you, learn from you, say how much they loved your, your appearance on the podcast today? Probably LinkedIn is just, you know, search for Eric Johnson, Derek Johnson. My name is spelled funny, A-R-I-K. Um, so uh, it'll probably be a little easier to find uh, the right Eric Johnson than the right Derek Johnson. We, we should have spelled your name equally weird, Derek, when <laughs> you were little. Maybe, maybe D-A-R-I-K? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, you can always pop into AuroraWDC.com as well if you want to find us there. Uh, but it's yep. been a great pleasure uh, and privilege, Adam, to... Uh, come on the show and hope that your listeners get some value out of this. They absolutely will. So I appreciate you guys taking the time and everyone, we will catch you next week. Hi everyone, I'm Jody Geiger, Revenue Enablement Coach at Clue and host of the Winning is Women podcast on the Compete Network. On my show, we're giving a voice to female sales leaders, coaches, and enablement experts. We're spotlighting their perspectives and wisdom, their experience and their heart, their vulnerability and their power so that our wider revenue community can feel their impact like their organizations already do. So join me July 7th for the season two premiere of Winning is Women on the Compete Network.